Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm your host, Aliza Rijan. Today, I'm joined by Colin Hoag, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Smith College. We will be talking about his book, The Fluvial Imagination, on Lesotho's Water Export Economy, published by the University of California Press in 2022. Thank you very much, Colin, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So to begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background in anthropology? And maybe by way of these questions, you can also tell us how you conceived of this book. Sure, thanks. Well, I like the question, uh, (laughs) partly because the book is really the product of a very long dialogue over the course of a decade or more with uh, a community of people. Uh, So this background really matters. Um, People like Sefiri Pepe, Cabela Satala, Ramazo Gurampai, Corinne Hoag, uh, Anand Singh, Zachary Capel, Katie Overstreet, Elaine Gann, Pierre Duplessis, Andrew Matthews, Danilin Rutherford, uh, Jens Christian Svenning. I could go on, right? There's all of these people who have been really important to me along the way and who have really shaped this conversation. So it doesn't appear so directly in the book because my name's on the front, but they've been really important voices. Um, and uh, I'll say uh, regarding my background that it's really pretty meandering. Maybe this is true for most people, but uh, I was not an anthropologist forever, that's for sure. When I was an undergraduate, I was an English and Spanish major, and basically because I like languages and I was a poetry nerd. And um, somehow, for reasons that I am still trying to piece together, um, I went to the Peace Corps after I graduated and uh, I was sent to Lesotho because the process is kind of open-ended and uh, there's not a lot of choice in the matter. And so I was assigned to Lesotho, not knowing much about it. And uh, I was really excited to get there. And uh, when I got there and spent these two and a half years there, I came to all sorts of questions about Lesotho and about um, inequality uh, across the globe, really, uh, about race and segregation, which is really a significant factor in Southern Africa. And uh, I got also really interested in forms of literature uh, and the uh, the language spoken in uh, in Lesotho, which is called Sesotho. And in particular, I was sent a book by a relative of mine on Lesotho's oral poetry traditions. Uh, and uh, it was this fascinating book by a guy named David Copeland, who I'd later study with at uh, the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Um, and the book was all about how a very long-standing oral poetry tradition called Ditoko uh, was being reimagined on mining compounds in South Africa um, because Lesotho had for then been maybe for about a century, in effect, a labor reserve for South African industry. And so many, many people, I mean, most 
uh, adult men in Lesotho would spend some portion of their lives working uh, in South Africa on the mines. And many, many women uh, of adult age also would migrate to South Africa to work uh, in you know, domestic uh, work and other kinds of labor. And then afterward, they would return to Lesotho uh, in retirement or if there was an injury or something like that, and which is really common on, uh, on the mines. And so on the mining compounds, uh, these men and women were reformulating this oral poetry tradition in order to theorize really their lives away from home on these mining compounds and working you know, deep underground in these, uh, uh, in these mines. And it was just so fascinating to me. And the book was filled with, uh, with all kinds of politics or, uh, gender politics, race politics, uh, economic politics. And so I was really interested that this book that was presented under the banner of anthropology was possible in that field. So I decided that I wanted to go do a doctorate in anthropology. And I wanted to pursue those, those kinds of questions um, regarding poetry and um, uh, specifically focused on uh, the border that South Africa has with Lesotho, because Lesotho, as many people know, is actually surrounded completely by South Africa with, uh, uh, with a continuous land border. So it's really unusual as a country. Um, and I ended up going to the University of Witwatersrand, as I mentioned, for a master's degree before enrolling in a doctoral program. And uh, I was really fascinated by living in Johannesburg and met some extraordinary scholars while I was there. And I ended up getting a, uh, a research assistantship with an institute that was called the Forced Migration Studies Program. Now it's been renamed as the African Center for Migration Studies. And uh, that place is really amazing. And they do all sorts of important work. And they had me working on this project uh, about uh, immigration bureaucracy at the Department of Home Affairs in South Africa, which is a really important and dysfunctional government department there. And uh, so... I got really interested in, uh, you know, these questions of bureaucracy and also like deepened my interest in, um, in migration studies. And then I went to um, University of California, Santa Cruz for my doctorate. And it was a really disorienting experience in a lot of ways, actually, because whereas in Johannesburg at Witz, uh, there was a really different set of literatures that were, you know, seen as really important. And there were a different set of issues that were, you know, in the newspapers, for example, and just being talked about around seminar tables. Uh, whereas in Joburg, they were organized around political philosophy and, uh, you know, questions of sovereignty and things like this, um, citizenship and identity in at Santa Cruz, questions of the environment were really top of mind and in a very uh, interesting way. So not your, you know, grandfather's environment. Um, there was Donna Haraway, there was Anit Singh, there were all of these really extraordinary people doing work on the environment that I just found so compelling and I could not put it down. And so I came to 
um, reconceive this project on Lesotho that was interested in questions of sovereignty and citizenship and identity um, actually as a, um, an environmental project because I realized that the project I had imagined doing was actually the project that had already been done by David Copeland in this book that I really liked. So, you know, I wanted to redo that book. And um, I think the book should be redone at another time because there's still, you know, more more happening. And uh, that oral poetic form has now been set to music and it's an entire important music tradition that's all over the place in Lesotho. So that would have been a great project, but uh, the time wasn't quite right. And I saw that actually... Um, some of the questions about citizenship and sovereignty were being articulated not through labor migration, actually, but through this water uh, export economy that had been established uh, in the late 1980s, right around the time, actually, that the labor migration economy in Lesotho um, was actually declining. So that's another story that we can get to later, perhaps. But uh, that's all to say that this project came about as I, uh, I guess, reconceived it in light of those changing conditions in Lesotho with regard to um, this water project and its importance to the national economy and to people's sense of themselves in Lesotho, but um, also because of my shifting conditions, <laughs> my shifting circumstances now at UC Santa Cruz, as opposed to University of the Vatersrand. Wow, thanks so much for taking us through these circuitous paths from, you know, poetics to water. And I want to jump into the question of water and get to the core of the book. Um, so your book really draws our attention to water as something that is produced, and you draw our attention to the infrastructures through which water is produced. So for you, what is at stake in staying with production? And why is Lesotho an important site to understand the production of water? I like this question also. Um, I, th- this is really how I thought about water um, at the end of my project was that it was something that was produced. Um, so before the project, I guess I had understood large water storage projects. So this includes uh, water transfer schemes, um, but also hydroelectric uh, projects as fundamentally about um storage that and storage seemed uninteresting to me right that that there was this kind of uh, dam wall would be built and then there would accrue a certain amount of water and then the real political action was downstream sure there were people displaced and so there was like a, a kind of a sacrifice you know that was made in those upstream areas but that um, the real action took place downstream when, you know, a valve would be opened or shut. Um, and partly I was led to that because of the extraordinary work in water studies that had showed me, you know, just how consequential those downstream politics are for how people in urban areas or on farms or whatever uh, gain access to water and who among them has, has that access. Uh, but in Lesotho, I, I noticed that this work of storage was actually really 
interesting. And it was not just about kind of capturing water behind a dam wall, that there was this pulse of activity, uh, kinds of engineering that weren't just about building dam walls. They were actually um, symbolic engineering, teaching people how to understand that, you know, active capture and storage. Um, they were social forms of engineering in which people were taught to act well in the upstream catchment to protect those reservoirs. Um, and then there was also alongside that ecological engineering, trying to get people to respect the land in the upstream catchment, you know, in quotes. Um, and so it started to feel to me as though the questions about water access within water studies and water provisioning had maybe an urban bias, right? And that when you realize that production happens, like that the water volumes in the reservoir contingent upon this upstream work, um, then a whole host of questions, you know, become uh, worth asking. And I, I suppose I was inspired in this, not just by the fact that, um, you know, because I was interested in Lesotho and I spent a lot of time in these upstream areas and lo and behold, you know, couldn't help but see this action. Uh, but also because of the fact that the project took place in Lesotho, which has a very particular history in regard to uh, storage and storage infrastructures. So as I alluded to in the first question, Lesotho had for about a century been made to serve as a labor reserve for South African industry. And this was done through uh, a, a variety of means, but uh, they are analogous to the production of what were called Bantu stands or homelands uh, during the apartheid years in South Africa. And according to that system, rural areas were established for ethnic groups within South Africa, African ethnic groups within South Africa. So the idea, according to this white supremacist political philosophy of apartheid, was that each ethnic identity would have its own homeland. And in that homeland, which was never a nice piece of territory, right? It was these really hard scrabble areas um, in the, you know, least productive arable you know, non-arable lands of South Africa, um, in those homelands, these ethnic groups would have some kind of sovereignty and autonomy, and they would be able to preserve their language and their cultural traditions, and they wouldn't um, be subject to this kind of melting pot that was Johannesburg, right, in which everybody would be forced to adopt the ways of others. This is how the logic of apartheid as it was um, operated. And uh, of course it was a ruse because the real truth to that system was that it was a form of racial capitalism, which is that it was leveraging racial identities for the sake of creating a labor force that was, um, uh, that was first of all, immiserated and could be tapped at any moment. So flows of labor from labor reserves, these homelands could be um, uh, could be tapped, and you know the flows could be stopped or turned on at any moment. Lesotho was really quite 
like this. Um, and uh, there's a fantastic chapter by James Ferguson in his book, Global Shadows, that describes just this process um, that Lesotho, even though it was a real country, in quotes, uh, and therefore at the dissolution of apartheid was uh, allowed to uh, remain whole, um, in fact, it has this kind of similar logic within the Southern African political economy. And uh, so Lesotho, before the water economy rendered it as a storage vessel for water commodities, was a storage vessel for labor commodities. And actually the decline of the water, uh, the decline of the labor export economy articulated just perfectly really with the rise of the water export economy because it was right around the end of apartheid actually that people from Lesotho lost access um, in the ways that they had it before to the South African labor market. Um, and it was around that same time that the uh, treaty was signed to move forward with this water export economy. So is this really interesting kind of uh, symmetry in these two uh, projects. And, you know, in this, um, all of this uh, business about storage vessels, I was learning from uh, a lot of longstanding scholarship on uh, this racial capitalist system in the region by like Bernard Magubani, Harold Wolpe, and more recently, Ashil Mbembe too. Uh, so they really, I think, paved the way, but they were talking about labor and not about water per se. So my effort was to put um, uh, to to put some language to to describe uh, how the production of water commodities is kind of is analogous to this production of labor commodities, if you will. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's a theme that really comes across in the book. So. Now, we talked a little bit about water as something that's produced. You also show us that water is made to move, and that is done through fluvial imaginations, your book's titular concept. So I was wondering if you can speak a little bit to the relationship between imagination and water's flows and moments. What kinds of imaginations move water and how does that inform your concept of fluvial imagination? Yeah, thanks. Um, well, first, I think it came, this concept came out of a kind of moment of reflexivity, which is that I realized toward the end of this project as I was writing the book that I had spent an extremely long <laughs> amount of time uh, trying to figure out how water flowed across the landscape. It was a very difficult uh, intellectual problem for me. And I realized that it had been at the heart of um, a lot of the work that I was doing uh, because we haven't gotten to this yet, but I was working really hard to understand how to read the landscape. So uh, there are fears that soil erosion could compromise this water project, uh, that the sedimentation of these dam reservoirs would render the transfer infrastructure uh, and the hydroelectric infrastructure uh, non-functional, and that therefore uh, measures should be taken to change the way that people graze animals, practice agriculture, and you know comport themselves in the upstream catchment. And so I was 
trying to determine was this accurate? I mean, is, what is the state of um, sedimentation? To what extent is soil erosion a problem? If it's a problem, what's the cause of the problem? Uh, what's the history of that problem? Is it a recent thing that soil erosion is now an issue um, that affects this project? Where exactly is it most pronounced? These kinds of questions. And so I expended an incredible amount of energy trying to <laughs> come to an understanding about those questions and very vexing and difficult questions, even for people who are trained, you know, in uh, fluvial geomorphology and these fields that are typically like um, tasked with with making those determinations. And uh, I saw that actually all of the people that I was speaking to, whether it's the uh, people who were tasked with um, implementing soil conservation measures in the upstream catchment, or if it was uh, farmers and you know, livestock owners or herders who were uh, grazing animals in the upstream catchment, um, they also were trying to figure out how water flows across the landscape and therefore what should be done about it. Um, and uh, so it was this realization that actually we all though from different positions and with different stakes and um, uh, different histories and sensibilities and tools of seeing, uh, we're arriving at this question about how does the water flow exactly and what do you do about it? And um, so that was really the kernel of the idea for the title and really helped to organize my thinking in an important way. Uh, it was actually refreshing because it took the burden off of me <laughs> for having to give the authoritative rendering right of who was right and who was wrong i still try to give the best uh guess account for that based on all of this voluminous evidence that i you know accumulated over the course of this decade-long project to provide a, a satisfactory answer to that but but along the way also wanted to communicate that uh, the, the creation of this water export economy kind of interpolated water theorists. It, interpreted, it interpolated a set of um, uh, fluvial geomorphologists, you know, that we all, all of us moving through the Lesotho uh, Highland catchments found ourselves reflecting on what we knew about water's flow and uh, how to read those flows in the landscape, because there are a variety of ways to arrive at the question, arrive at an answer to the question regarding what is the nature of the problem, soil erosion and such. Those can, those can be um, modeling efforts. So for example, within uh, geomorphology and soil conservation, there is a modeling tool called uh, Rusle, R-U-S-L-E, which takes uh, a set of parameters about the catchment, you know, including uh, the rainfall regime and the slope and the nature of the soils, and then dumps the information into, you know, a calculator and out pops a number to describe the erosion hazard of an area and the likely sediment uh, accumulation, you know, of, um, uh, of a catchment. 
There are uh, direct measuring techniques. One can measure uh, rates of uh, uh, of the suspended load or the bed load in the stream flow, so in the river itself, uh, and then back calculate according to the nature of the rains and the catchment about what the likely um, volumes of sediment being accumulated are. One can measure gullies, uh, and but all of these really are very difficult, first of all, and they require some really long-term monitoring that uh, is was difficult to impossible for me, but also including for these water engineers, right? They, they require a really robust uh, monitoring effort that has even eluded them. Um, and that's, that's on them, actually. That's their problem. They needed to do <laughs> more of this. So uh, it, it shouldn't actually be up to people like me to go, you know, search that stuff out. Um, and the water project actually didn't do enough to, to get a grip on this problem. Uh, another way to measure it includes um, bathymetry. So like a, a sonar kind of survey of a reservoir to determine over time what kinds of uh, uh, accumulate uh, what kinds of sediment levels are accumulating and where within a re within the reservoir, and um, anyway, so all of these are uh, are products of this fluvial imagination, this incitement to fluvial theory. Uh, they're all moves that are made when one really cares about how uh, the water is flowing across the landscape, and uh, but in the end, without all of that measuring what it, we're left with are these kind of ad hoc landscape reading techniques that I really focused on and became somewhat skilled at uh, learning from my uh, interlocutors, which is to uh, make, in effect, natural history observations about what the landscape looks like. Uh, so there are a lot of different ways to do it that, and I won't go through all of them, um, but uh, they can include things like... Uh, uh, discerning uh, after a big rain what kinds of sediment one finds tumbling across the uh, uh, roadway or uh, trying to discern uh, uh, vegetation patterns that might point toward uh, evidence of uh, compaction in the soil from livestock trampling or uh, overgrazing in quotes and so on. So uh, in effect, all of us were doing this kind of theory work and that became therefore central to the way that I wanted to describe this activity of, uh, of landscape and water theory that was being produced in the upstream catchment. And which I think is really important, uh, not just for Lesotho, all, you know, uh, notwithstanding the particularities of Lesotho, I think for any number of other water catchments where like, what large water projects like this are, in effort, I think you will see the same kind of uh, fluvial imagination uh, being cultivated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up reading the landscape over and over because as I was reading the book, I was thinking about you know, how you invite us to seeing the landscape like a bureaucrat or reading the landscape as one. So I'm curious about what metaphors like seeing or reading do for your thinking around bureaucracy? And maybe they're not even, you know, metaphors for you about particular methodologies, but I'd love to hear what you um, think about that and how you work through those. 
I like the way you put it because they are metaphors and methodologies. Um, I mean, I, I suppose bureaucracy can be thought of as a way of seeing, right? Or a way of disciplining people to see, right? I mean, it's a set of procedures and uh, it entails paperwork and it's a set of protocols and whatever else. But uh, at heart, it's a way of seeing the world, I think. And um, like so many things in our world, our worlds these days, conservation work has a strong bureaucratic uh, ethos and texture to it. Uh, so work is done in conservation to isolate and define actors and timelines um, and to develop new social or political formations that'll accommodate an intervention into the landscape. Um, and then that intervention will be assessed through bureaucratic means of quantification and whatever else. And so that was really apparent to me in, uh, in, in the field as I spoke with people who were implementing these soil conservation programs, that uh, there is a lot of bureaucratic work going on and that um, those bureaucratic visions of the landscape at some level get etched into the landscape because they are particular ways of reading the landscape. They're not the only way of reading it and that they come attached to a political agenda, right? And uh, so their political agenda becomes manifest in a, a way of doing things in the landscape that reflects that bureaucratic vision. Uh, so, for example, development and conservation initiatives, which I group together, really, because in Lesotho and I think a lot of places, they are linked. Uh, development initiatives of various kinds, economic development initiatives and conservation initiatives. In Lesotho anyway, they're oftentimes linked through history and they're very long standing. Lesotho has a really long history of uh, development and conservation work. It's almost a kind of laboratory. It's been made a laboratory for development and conservation initiatives over the past century or more. And these interventions are all over Lesotho. You can see them everywhere and they are layered upon each other and they're, but, but in their traces, right? Because as we learned from Jim Ferguson and uh, many other people focused on development initiatives there and elsewhere, uh, many of these initiatives don't take, right? Or if they, if they take, um, it's sort of ephemerally, and what's left behind is um, is not a fully formed, you know, uh, political formation or something, right? Like it's not an entirely new alignment of uh, of politics and society, but uh, but nevertheless, things are left behind. There are traces that are left behind, and so in conservation, I I seen this a lot, and I describe in the book how. Uh, grazing management interventions have been one really signature kind of conservation initiative in Lesotho. And uh, one of the ways that they're put in place is through these uh, range management institutions uh, called graze grazing associations. And these grazing associations, which are being put into place yet again in Lesotho after you know many other tries, uh, 
are inserted into a landscape littered with these other bureaucratic invention, uh, interventions that have hung around a little bit. And when you see an intervention put in place in Lesotho today, you see how it bumps up against all of these other accreted or sedimented uh, initiatives from the past. And so I saw how not only were these initiatives trying to cultivate a kind of vision of the landscape that they hoped might change the way that people acted within the landscape, but that also they were dead on arrival in a way because of the, uh, not just because of the fact that they weren't at the end of the day necessarily about that conservation initiative in the way that Jim Ferguson described, right? They were, they're oftentimes ways of um, reaffirming a politics that already exists, but also they were dead on arrival partly because of uh, the prior initiatives that remained uh, salient at some level. So these new initiatives have to kind of reckon with these past initiatives that have some little bit of traction uh, that endures in the social and material landscape. And they have to kind of reckon with it. And so the failure of those past interventions kind of comes to haunt these future interventions and, uh, you know, improvements to the landscape through management become thwarted by prior interventions into the landscape. <laughs> so uh, it's this really complicated kind of recursive process that I saw uh, being uh, put on full display in the water economy where these questions really matter a great deal because the soil erosion problems are real and they really uh, are urgent. And the water engineers and uh, whoever you want to say is responsible for it re uh, really need to get a grip on it. But uh, they're kind of hamstrung by this long history of conservation and development uh, from the past. Yeah, absolutely. And no, I want to continue with another um, metaphor or metaphor as method. So you draw from photography um, and you come up with this term, negative ecologies. So I was wondering if you can elaborate on this term for our listeners and why was it important for you to think about ecology through negatives? Thank you for that question. I am I was really excited about that moment in the book because it's important to me as an argument uh, about ecology, but also about the nature of the landscape in Lesotho. Uh, and it's partly inspired by um, uh, a concept of shadow ecologies from Peter Dalvern um, and also uh, from an insight by Piers Blakey, who's a geographer um, from a 1985 book actually called Soil Erosion in Developing Countries. And um, in both cases, the authors point to the fact that a landscape appears fully formed and yet its formation is a product of things happening offsite. So in the case of Piers Blakey, he describes how uh, soil erosion is often treated as a kind of local problem for conservation initiatives, right? So here in front of us stands this gully 
and we must cast about around this zone for for responsible actors and then you know get them to change their ways right like what is happening here that needs to change when in fact he showed because he had a political sensibility about him has a political sensibility about him um he showed that the uh the action was really off-site that the reason that people were say grazing animals in the way that they are in that landscape is not because of their beliefs necessarily about how to graze animals although of course that's in the mix right but especially it's about the choices that have been um uh limited for them by a broader political economy so the land the livelihood you know options for people in places like Lesotho's highlands have been severely constrained by a whole host of processes that are not locatable on site. So you have to look off site. I find that so important and valuable uh, for thinking about soil erosion and a host of other problems, actually, but that's another story. Uh, that when looking upon a, uh, an object, uh, a landscape, a phenomenon, a uh, formation that it is not simply a local product that actually we have to do some different kinds of scalar work to conceive of what this thing is and how it came about. Uh, so that was really important for Lesotho because uh, Lesotho's uh, erosion problems, I firmly believe, are not a product of on-site management but rather the kinds of landscape op, uh, land livelihood options that have been made available um, through a political economy that has made Lesotho into a periphery and a periphery that is um, vital to the center. So the core needs Lesotho for its, um, uh, for its wealth generation. And so the landscape problems in Lesotho are actually products of uh, the, you know, inequality that's been generated through the production of wealth in the center, in the core of South Africa's political economy, such as in those labor migration mining compounds in uh, and around Johannesburg. And this is, uh, so I make the case, for example, that when looking upon a a gully in Lesotho, you're not simply seeing a gully, you're actually seeing a kind of a fountain in Santon, you know, you're seeing a, a tactical security vehicle or a, a gated fence, you know, in a wealthy suburb of Johannesburg. That's what that gully is in an important way, or at least you can't understand the gully without seeing the tactical security vehicle. And this, I think, is a really important lesson not just for like anthropology projects, but actually for ecology. Uh, so I did a lot of ecology work as part of this project, which we haven't talked about yet, but um, uh, that's a whole long story. But uh, the, the, um, within ecology, there are some scalar problems as well. Um, and oftentimes in ecology projects, uh, the scale of analysis is delimited in a really strong way. Uh, and it's important to the, uh, to the methods 
because of their reliance upon statistical inference and a whole host of other things, but they need a, a delimited site uh, and they need for, uh, we need when practicing ecology, we need a, del, uh, a delimited set of actors who can be understood to be acting within this site so that you can understand how, you know, a pattern of vegetation came about, say. And uh, so this is really powerful for that field and its ability to produce, you know, convincing authoritative knowledge about the formation of those patterns. But at the end of the day, it excludes so much. And in, you know, the Anthropocene, uh, you know, in a time of ecological crisis, when people are increasingly aware of the fact that we need to understand environments as both uh, products of non-human action as well as uh, products of uh, human action and politics and culture in particular. I think ecology really strongly needs um, to have a sense for these kind of politics, right, that are embedded within that scalar work. Um, uh, uh, we need to be able to see the tactical security guard vehicle when doing ecology projects. So that was the origin of that, um, uh, of that concept. And uh, I really just liked the way that the negative conjured this kind of photographic negative, the sense that uh, there's this, you know, trick to the production of the vision that, you know, has us excluding all that other stuff so we can see it clear and live in color in front of us. And we need to be able to see the negative as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love how, you know, you bring up landscape, which, um, you know, you really incorporate centrally in your methodology of the book. In fact, you call the book an ethnography of landscape. And I love how you frame these questions about landscape and ecology through color as well, right? So the book really comes across as an ethnography of landscape, not just through how you conducted field work, but through how you wrote the book and the color images that you included. So I'm curious about what this methodological approach meant for you and what did you want to capture by, you know, writing a book that's an ethnography of landscape? At some level, that phrase, ethnography of landscape, was a way for describing to myself what I was doing, <laughs> because of course we also need that as writers and as thinkers, right? We sometimes create concepts just as a way of giving a name to the thing we're doing. Um, and uh, so that maybe is the origin. And we do that a lot. A lot of it falls away or gets, you know, shrouded in, uh, in concepts or something later on that look like uh, they're more directed outward, but this is, it was a case where this one didn't really get shed, partly because I thought that it might be helpful as an outward-facing concept. Um, and I, 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 I was inspired in it by others who've used similar terms like uh, Laura Ogden and um, others. And it was a way for me to capture the fact that uh, this was a project that was really interested in this immersive ethnographic attention uh, to 
both what is happening and how people are conceiving of it, right? Which I think is like the, the, that wonderful movement of ethnography, that it has that reflexive quality to it, even though it's about real things in the world. And, um, uh, but then also it kept the focus on uh, the landscape, which I find is just a really useful concept. I mean, even in that concept landscape, we have both a set of phenomena, a uh, set of objects in motion in, uh, a, in a scene. And the scene is beheld, right, by a viewer. And so it captures at one and the same time an array, uh, a spatial arrangement of things that are in movement um, yeah, and have a kind of geometry to them, um, but also that shift depending how, on how you look at them. And that was really important for me because I was trying to incorporate not only this ethnographic work to understand the ways that water was moving across the landscape and what it meant for this uh, soil erosion problem and the water export economy, uh, but also trying to incorporate ecological methods because I really uh, felt strongly and still do that it was important for me to not not just name how people were describing the landscape, but also have some way of tracking what I saw in the landscape, whether that was through an ecological science empiricism or through some other means, uh, I needed a way to name that work because it was really important to me. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's not just how people view the landscape, right? Like there's a lot of important work that happens there that is entirely, you know, uh, uh, that is crucial to understanding like how, who has access to things in the landscape and how the landscape uh, is understood and manipulated or whatever. But also at the same time, landscapes are products of, um, of abiotic and biotic non-human work. And this is a point that was really put for me forcefully, not just by ecology, folks that I've talked with and read, uh, but also um, uh, Zachary Capel, who is um, an anthropologist uh, who uh, also graduated from UC Santa Cruz, who was with me in my cohort, who is really important to me, ha is really important to me. And he uh, makes the point really strongly that we have to be able to see the ways that um, uh, that non-humans are acting within the landscape and that there's a whole lot of activity in a landscape that has nothing to do with humans. And that's a difficult point to arrive at, actually, especially in all of the, you know, fervor about the Anthropocene, because now we see human traces everywhere. And that's right and wrong, right? I mean, it's right in the sense that there is devastation all around us, but it's wrong in the sense that, um, it maybe uh, puts too too blunt a, a a point on it, I guess, if I could say that. That it it almost uh, has us imagining the human hand in everything, when in fact, uh, in a plant community, say, there's tons of activity happening, and that we need to be able to see that stuff too. So the concept of ethnography of landscape, um, as a concept and as a methodology, was a way of um, reminding myself and others about all of that movement. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's so beautifully put. Um, and you know, something that really intrigued me about the book was that it's open access. And I'd love to learn more about what it meant for you to write an open access book and, you know, whether this reflected in your approach to writing or even, you know, how you elaborated on the project. I am so happy that it's open access. I can't uh, communicate it. I mean, I can't overstate that. It's uh, it's really wonderful. First, because it will be accessible in Lesotho. And I, uh, you know, this is my first book, so I don't really still understand how books work and how uh, distribution and everything works. Uh, so I was really nervous that the book might not be on shelves in Lesotho and that even if it was, you know, books are expensive, um, especially outside the United States, books can be very expensive. And that's true in, in South Africa and Lesotho for sure. And so first of all, it meant that there would be access all over the place and uh, including, especially in Lesotho and, and South Africa. So that was really important to me. Um, and, uh, the first thing I should have said was just how thankful I am to UC press and in particular, uh, Kate Marshall, my acquisitions editor for, uh, finding these funds because there was a pot of funds that, um, was available and, uh, and I'm so grateful that uh, they were able to find that pot. And one of the wonderful things about it is that um, uh, when people buy hard copies of the book, which I'm a, a fan of hard copies, so um, I do that too, uh, you actually, the proceeds from the hard copy book go back into this pool of funds for more open access books, which is really nice. Uh, so that was, uh, just like a really wonderful bonus for me, I guess. And, um, I, I really hope that it means that more people will get to read it and that maybe it can be assigned on syllabi. I know that in my syllabi, I worry about students being able to purchase books, right? So that's, um, hopefully alleviated and, uh, yeah, I hope that it will just be more widely read. I mean, we know in scholarly publishing, that scholarly books don't make authors money and they don't really seem to make the publishing houses money either. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know who gets the money if there is any money being gotten, but uh, this way the uh, more people have access to it. And that's really wonderful. Yeah, that's amazing. And thanks for taking us through no, a book as something that's produced as well, right? Ah, uh, right, <laughs> <That's>... right. <laughs> I need to go that... upstream, yeah. <laughs> um, so lastly, Colin, what is next for you? What are some new research projects or teaching projects that you're working on right now? I Right now I have two different projects going on, both of which I'm really excited about and neither of which I really have a, you know, strong sense for yet, right? Because they're early, but uh, they're both focused on uh, botany, actually, because I've been really interested in botany these days. And uh, one of them is actually about Sylvia Plath and her time in a botany course at uh, Smith College at our Botanic Gardens Lyman Plant Conservatory. I really like uh, plant conservatories, plant houses. And um, I have always been a fan of Sylvia Plath, but uh, all the more so lately. 
And uh, Plath was a student at Smith and one of the most important alums here and is amazing. And I think raises just a profound set of questions that everybody I think should go through to, you know, to sort through. But anyway, she did, um, she took a class in botany in her first year at Smith College called Botany 1-1. And in it, she uh, did a set of experiments in, um, in, I think it was her second week called Manufacture of Carbohydrates, where she learned about how plants photosynthesize. And uh, in it, she used bell jars. And it turned out that's where she came upon her bell jar metaphor. And so I am thinking with Sylvia Plath a lot these days and um, thinking with her about what plant conservatories are and mean, what uh, the human condition is in light of um, our encounters with the botanical world, uh, what her encounter there tells us about, um, uh, about not just the human condition, but specifically uh, patriarchy and um, and about plant conservatories, because I think they're really interesting. So what it says about encountering plants from faraway places, which is what plant conservatories are, are all about. They're these colonial artifacts that were sites for the display of colonial exotica from faraway lands. And that used to be really important to colonial plunder, uh, producing cash crops and phar- uh, pharmacopias. Uh, but nowadays are these kind of relics that uh, we don't necessarily know what to do with, but have these incredible plants uh, and they are really stirring and uh, I need to understand more about them. So that's one project. And then a second one is focused on uh, the, uh, the forms of cosmopolitanism actually that we see in the uh, cosmopolitan plant family, uh, Asteraceae sometimes goes by um, composite. So the daisies and the sunflowers. And uh, I'm interested in com- cosmopolitanism, partly because I feel like cosmopolitanism, even though it's a concept we're all familiar with and has been at the center of lots of, you know, in lots of moments of scholarship, including like globalization literatures and whatnot, is really undergoing a strange moment right now with uh these forms of you know white nationalist populisms and um other kinds of forms of um of identity that are rooted in place firmly so i think that there's something happening with cosmopolitanism that i'm really curious about but uh but in relation to our understanding of ourselves as humans in uh the anthropocene so in a world that it's been disturbed by human action all over the place. And cosmopo- the, the composite, the Asteraceae, are a really good family to think with in that regard because they are a disturbance-loving plant that has this really profoundly cosmopolitan you know, global distribution. They occur everywhere, and uh, especially where, um, uh, where humans create these open environments. So I want to use them... Uh, as a way of exploring that concept, but also just to revel and luxuriate in their form and their, uh, their distribution and their ways of living and their associations and in their ways of movement uh, and 
uh, I find them really extraordinary. So if anybody out there uh, wants to talk about the Compositi or Sylvia Plath, I hope you'll uh, give me a ring and we can talk. <laughs> these both sound fascinating, Colin. We'll be looking forward to these works. Um, but for now, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your book with us. Alize, thank you so much. This was wonderful. I really appreciate it. This is your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of the Fluwheel Imagination on Lesotho's Water Export Economy, published by the University of California Press in 2022, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. <laughs>